0: Okay, thank you very much. Uh, My name is uh, Sue Dobson. I'm one of the professors here at uh, the Saeed Business School and moderator um, of this particular session, Change and Innovation, What are the Obstacles to Change in Complex Health Organizations in the UK? So uh, not an insignificant question. Um, And this is a topic that, uh, indeed, I have been working on uh, in my research career for over sort of 10 years, thinking about the careers of organisations and the challenges of achieving change. Um, and I think, you know, over that time, um, you know, the scholarship in this area does go, give us some, some lessons. Uh, we know that, um, you know, innovation is very messy. We know that the word evidence is very much a contested concept. It means different things to different group of workers in healthcare. We know that there are very strong communities of practice within healthcare organisations, um, which makes make it very difficult sometimes to have conversations across those kinds of boundaries. We also know that local contexts are very uh, different and local cultures, structures, practices are important mediators of uh, change. We also know that opinion leaders are important and we know that I think most importantly that top-down change management with rationalistic assumptions will simply not work. Uh, Yet despite that knowledge, it seems that within the NHS uh, we still have many, many, many problems in translating good ideas, uh, whether that's research, whether that's organizational practices, uh, into practice. So this panel um, is really seeking to address uh, this kind of challenge and shed lights on the obstacles, um, but also, I hope, very much what might help. And we have three um, very, very distinguished uh, speakers uh, on the panel today. I'm delighted to welcome them. Um, you'll probably notice that we are absent of a female on the panel. Uh, <clears throat> so Jenny Simpson um, has unfortunately, I think, been whisked away by the Department of Health to do something, I think, terribly important, but maybe not. Um, But nonetheless, she has very, very helpfully suggested that Alan takes her place, and we're really pleased to welcome Dr. Alan Cole. Um, Just a word about Alan. He's been uh, a medical director of the University Hospitals of Leicester. Uh, He did that for 17 years, um, which made him one of the longest-serving medical directors in the UK. So I suspect he's seen a great deal um, of interesting um, uh, kind of practice in this area. He's been a board member and a chair of the British Association of Medical Managers, BAM, and he's currently working with BAM on a part-time basis to develop a faculty of medical management and also to work with the Department of Health on developing rehabilitation for medical professionals. And he also continues his clinical practice As So we very much welcome Alan and thank you very much for for, for taking Jenny's place. Um, Keith Ruddle is our other panellist, a fellow at Green Templeton College. Uh, Keith has specialised at Oxford since 1994 in the area of leadership and change. He he teaches uh, and writes in this area and he works with uh, very senior teams in the public and private sector. Interestingly, he's worked since 2006 uh, with the NHS Management Board nationally and locally on the leadership of change. Um, so again, we we'll be very much drawing on uh, that experience, plus his 20 years' experience in industry and consulting. So very much welcome, Keith, um, to the panel. And our final panel member is Professor Andrew Pettigrew. Uh, Andrew is a colleague, a professor of strategy and organisation at the Saïd Business School, and also a fellow of Brasenose College. Um, prior to coming to Oxford, Andrew has held appointments at Yale, London Business School, Warwick, Harvard, all the good places. Uh, but he finally, fortunately, joined us here. He is uh, an author and, uh, and co-author of uh, many, many books, and is very well known as a scholar in the area. Of change and leadership, and particularly his work has highlighted the importance of understanding context uh, as an aspect of, of change. So, I hope you'll agree that we have uh, three uh, very distinguished um, people to talk to us about these issues, and what we've agreed is that we're, each uh, participant is going to speak for about 15 minutes. Um, And then we're going to have 10 minutes from the floor in terms of that presentation. And that will leave us an awful lot of time um, to have a kind of conversation uh, in the room about these issues. So very much welcome, uh, Alan, to start the proceedings off. Thank you.
1: Good afternoon. Um, Thank you, Sue, for that uh, kind introduction. Um, It's a great uh, honor and privilege to be speaking at this conference uh, on innovation. Um, I I feel that I'm very much the person who will be presenting quite a practical and experiential uh, uh, viewpoint um, of how change and innovation happens or doesn't happen within uh, the, the NHS as a very large healthcare organization. Um, And having uh, been asked to do this at rather late notice, um, I um, apologise in advance that I've I've only just put a few overheads together just to act as an aid memoir for the things that I particularly want to say because what I'm wanting to do is is to give you uh, an idea of what my focus is uh, and where I come from and the sort of things that I think are important uh, from an experiential and a medical director 's point of view, which will enable you to uh, direct questions at me later um, and r- recognize that uh, what, what um, at least some of the perspectives that I could, that I have uh, <clears throat> um, i 'll just try and i 'm going to start off uh, with um, just some questions because I think we we come at this subject, particularly if you come at it from outside the NHS. One considers that the NHS is this great big (coughs) leviathan of an organisation in which change just doesn't happen. If it does happen, it's like swimming through treacle uh, or or some some other form. But I can tell you that when you're working within it, that's very far from the truth. Change is happening all the time and extraordinarily fast. And indeed, it is actually... um, the, the, the fatigue of change that causes some of the difficulties rather than anything else. And, and I would point to the fact that uh, al- although um, some medical innovations um, are quite difficult to advance within, uh, within the National Health Service, others go through it like wildfire, and there is no doubt uh, that there is a, f- a fashion element which is not terribly well evidence-based um, within the practice of medicine. I think that's getting better with the onset of, with, the, with, the, with organizations like NICE, uh, which have become more directive and more uh, able to help with uh, the evidence behind healthcare practice. But change happens, and change happens very quickly in the clinical circumstances. There are occasional, ob- well, there are, there are many obstacles, uh, and I'll come on to those in the moment, um, but it's amazing how one finds ways around those obstacles and in particular I would like to actually point out um, the number of changes that happen uh, from a management point of view uh, I, I've uh, Sue's tol- told you that I've, I've been working as a medical director for 17 years um, a- and I, I think I lost count of the number of reorganizations that we had after about five um, so we are constantly getting um, reorganisations, restructures, changes the way we do things and I have to say that the evidence base behind some of the management changes is extraordinarily thin uh, as a, 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 from, from an experience, my experience uh, point of view. So um, I, I just wanted to get that context right in the first place. Does the NHS resist all change? No it doesn't. It might get tired but basically there is a huge amount of change going on in, in it the whole time. Um, is there a lack of enthusiasm? Uh, it, it seldom a year goes past um, when one doesn't hear people within the health service telling you uh, that the morale is at its lowest in the NHS than it has been in its life. And I think every year that goes by, people actually claim that. Um, But actually working within it, there are an enormous number of extraordinarily enthusiastic people and extremely well motivated within the NHS. So I don't think actually enthusiasm um, in itself uh, is a problem. (coughs) However, what are the essential elements for change and bringing about innovation in the NHS which, which can be missing and cause the obstructions and the obstacles? And I put at the top clinical engagement, and I think I shouldn't have put clinical engagement, I think I should have put clinical leadership, or at least leadership in, in general, but, uh, which needs to be clinically focused. Um, there is no doubt, Now, one doesn't want to be elitist about this, but there is no doubt that the influence and opinion forming within uh, healthcare is dominated by the medical profession. Not solely, but it is still dominated by the medical profession. And um, if one wants to get a change in place, it is very unlikely to happen unless you have opinion formers, opinion leaders within the clinical community who will take that, who who will believe in the change and will take it forward. Imposed uh, change uh, without clinical engagement is almost always destined to fail. And I'll try and give some examples in a a few minutes. Um, And that works partly because clinicians can be enthusiastic and can drive uh, change, but they can also be great obstructors if they don't actually believe in a change. And there are numerous ways that um, doctors uh, are able to obstruct change Um, even if it is change which is driven by the force of the law. The next um, element is is the need to realise benefits. My experience is that there are constantly, as I've already said, there are constantly new things happening within the NHS. There are constant innovations, constant ideas coming up with people with often good ideas. And implementation can happen fairly in, in, for many of them. But where they often fall down is that they really are benefits. They're good ideas, and there are real benefits, both in quality and po- quite often in cost terms as well, so in productivity terms. But if those benefits aren't realized, then the idea begins to fail. And, and I'll come on again to an example where I, can, I think that that has happened. Uh, that realizing the benefits is something which um, not only does it have to need to happen within um, uh, driving forward a particular innovation or change, but also there is a reputational issue that if you uh, are seen as an organization or a group or an individual who has good ideas but doesn 't actually realize the benefits, then um, the reputa- your reputation founders. Another very important issue is a lot of the good ideas that come out or a lot of the ideas that come out, people get very focused on their own idea and their own particular environment in which they're working and they don't consider the effects um, on a a wider scale of of the innovation, um, whether it's a technical innovation or an organizational innovation. Um, And again, I'll try to give some colour to that uh, in a little while. And It's not just the disbenefits. There are nearly always, certainly in any big changes, losers, as one would expect. And one's got to be able to address the, uh, those issues and attempt, at least in part, to get some form of a win-win situation. I-, I think it's self-evident that we need to define what we're doing quite carefully and the parameters within which we're working. Um, And we need to ensure that whatever change we're doing, we're quite clear about uh, the purpose, the value, the aims um, of the change and the innovation. But this is something which is often um, overlooked. Another one, um, another essential element, again, um, is there is quite a lot of reward for, certainly personally, for people coming up with good ideas and new ideas. And theres I've already said there's a lot of enthusiasm, but people can get over-enthusiastic. I I, I sit on an interventional procedures advisory committee at uh, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, NICE, um, and where every month we go through um, new interventional procedures uh, and look coldly at the evidence. And it is quite... (laughs) extraordinary than the protagonists, the claims that protagonists make for new procedures or we don't deal with drugs but, but also for drugs that um, actually then founder because there's over enthusiasm or even false claims and then finally the element um, is around the organisation, it's the financial culture and I'll come on to that in a moment but it is really important that the, finan- that the financial culture of an organisation is right because not all organizations, particularly within the NHS, um, have the right culture because they 're constantly under um, under pressure and If there are organizations that do not uh, are not prepared to accept risk innovation and change obviously has to encompass risk risk of all sorts but but particularly financial risk um, and if you happen to be an organization that is had its fingers burnt by not realizing benefits in the past, then the financial culture can be very bad uh, to, for um, promoting uh, innovation and change. So the organization needs to have the right financial culture. And I'll just go on a little bit about the culture for change. I, I've already talked about enthusiasm. Um, I think it's very important that when one is tackling change, that there is great integrity and there's great openness. And very inclusive of all the stakeholders that are involved. I've already talked about the attitude of the organisation to risk in terms of finance, but it's broader than just finance. Um, And there needs to be uh, the right attitude of organisations to risk. That's not to say the organisation should be cavalier. It's got to be prudent, but able to advance risk and innovation, right? Advance change and innovation uh, in a constructive way. I've put down rewarding innovation. Um, there are some people that I have talked to about uh, of the obstru- obstacles to innovation who say one of our problems compared to other organisations is that we reward primary innovation quite strongly on a personal level and, 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 and there's... Um, it, within the NHS... We're constantly under pressure to come up with some new idea which is entirely novel and not been tried out before. And there's a really quite considerable reward in terms of reputation um, for that. But what there isn't a particular reward for, and there probably should be, is what one would call secondary innovation, and that's implementing innovations which have been uh, created by others. And I understand that there are some big organisations which actually both believe go out of their way. Someone told me that BP did this, Uh, that they purposely uh, rewarded their uh, staff for implementing innovations from other people or stealing them from other organisations. And I think that's something we're probably um, not very good about in the NHS. Um, And the culture of the organisation, we need to develop a history. The organisation needs to develop a history of delivering the expected benefits. I'll finish with just... I'm not. Don't think I'm going to go through all of the all the sort of story behind all these. But it, it, the purpose of this slide is just to show you some of the areas that I've been involved in. Uh, it's, it's only a few, but they're just things which immediately came to my mind when, when I'm when I'm talking about change and innovation and the things that I've been involved in. So, um, uh, and, and I'll just I- explain in a few words each one. Um, I think. We all know that um, I'm, of, of Lord Aradazi and the work that he did around uh, developing change, which had its foundations in London. And um, one of the concepts that he uh, espoused was uh, the idea of polyclinics, which is, if you like, um, a network of health care provision um, centred around health centres in the community, um, polyclinics or polysystems. Um, and the idea is, is that you can take care, much care, the more simple care, away from hospitals, which probably aren't very healthy environments anyway, um, and take them uh, more into the community. It's a great idea, great change. Um, I w- don't have any difficulties with it, and there is no doubt, not only may there be benefits, and almost certainly there are benefits uh, in terms of patient quality, uh, but uh, there could well be um, uh, financial benefits as well. However, I have been doing a little bit of work um, with some of organisations in uh, London, and it is quite extraordinary that with the current financial situation that is facing the public sector in general at the moment, as we all know, uh, there's likely to be little or no growth in the, in, in, in the public sector, in the NHS, um, in the coming years. And this idea of the polyclinics and the polysystems has been taken over wholesale as the way of solving all the financial crises uh, that are likely to be developing because of the public sector financial problems that we have in the uh, UK and in the Western world at this moment in time, um, which will almost certainly, in my opinion kill some very good ideas and some very good initiatives around polyclinics and polysystems, or may well do because people wanting to take the financial savings out without actually recognising that there's got to be certain double running and transitional arrangements in order to be able to implement polyclinics, you need to be looking at the long term um, so you know, just an illustration of some hazards uh, that one can have um, that I've come across recently I don't think I need to say much about NHS IT projects. They've had a very chequered career. Um, and, and the large um, nationally driven IT projects uh, or regionally driven IT projects have frequently failed um, because they've una- they have been unable to release the benefits, um, both financial and in quality terms, uh, that they should do. And, of course, they overrunning cost Enormously, and they underestimate the problem. And I think they're a fantastic example of um, outrageous uh, claims for uh, what the IT systems are going to be able to do. Um, So there goes um, one of my uh, uh, one of my issues. The Fracture Neck of Femur project is a much smaller project, but I'll just very briefly mention it. It's a project that I, I led in Leicester where it became quite obvious that the um, poor old people, around 800 of them a year, uh, who fractured their f- necks of Femur, uh, were spending far too long in hospital and the outcomes weren't very good. Um, and um, they were taking an average length of stay of about 30 days. And I looked at the length of time it took to get them to theatre and you would be shocked and surprised <coughs> to find that they, it was close to five days before they actually got to the operating theatre. We took this project, um, and, and I won't go into the details, but it required a big investment. But the, the difficulty that I had in being able to get the investment, which was around three to £400,000, um, to persuade uh, that this was a going to be a uh, value for money and be able to be a cost-benefit was, of course, extraordinarily difficult. I did fortunately manage it, but and we did finally save well over a million pounds. <coughs> so, actually, it was cost-beneficial uh, uh, overall. But that change was extraordinarily difficult to happen. And I won't go on a bit... F- I could go on a little bit further and say that we then stopped the project and thought that it was to be self-sustaining, and it wasn't, and it slipped back, and and. Not to as bad as it was, but it did slip back quite quite dramatically. So there's a lesson there about sustainability of change and innovation. I've been very heavily involved with reconfiguration of uh, services, uh, particularly the, the buildings and the estate. Um, and, and I don't think I can if I have time to spend. Um, on the difficulties that there are there, but there are some fantastic examples of how you actually have to get win-win situations and you have to get um, particularly the clinical and the medical staff uh, to be able to understand a much more strategic view and to ensure that one has addressed the losers as well as the winners. So that, that there are lots of examples in that. And more recently... Um, I'll finish with this and again it's a complex subject but I'm now quite involved in a number of different facets with introducing uh, revalidation for doctors to ensure that they are remain knowledgeable, competent safe and healthy in order to be able to continue practice Um, I think many members of the public think that happens already Uh, it it doesn't Um, and it's extraordinarily difficult to actually make that happen uh, but it's, it's, again, a change which um, has illustrated to me all the issues that I need to address when I'm implementing it as a pilot in Leicester uh, and also in some of the work I'm doing nationally. Um, but I'll stop at that point. I think I've sort of illustrated enough where I come from and uh, what I do and, and some of the experiences that I've had. So thank you very much for listening.
0: on the couch. Perhaps we can have time for a couple of questions there. I'd like to ask you one, Alan. I mean, Who are the key people to approach in a healthcare organisation if you want to achieve innovation?
1: Yes, I I think um, the most key people, as I've I've really introduced in in my talk already, uh, are likely to be the medical staff. But I think I need to go a bit further than just the medical staff. Nowadays, medical staff, certainly in a hospital environment, um, there is the, some form of hierarchy which some years ago there wasn't so that um, we now have clinical leaders we now have clinical directors we now have medical directors and frankly they are probably the key people if one wants to get change and innovation actually get got in, got in to that particular environment and indeed I'd go further than that uh, I think they're probably more important to approach than uh, the regular management of the hospital, such as chief executives uh, and and the rest. I mean, I I would say that because I've been a medical manager (laughs) myself. But I I think it's also important to recognize that at the individual organizational level, so there is um, probably more potency of getting innovation actually in place than there is uh, if one approaches it nationally. So I say that that's the, okay. the, probably the key point.
0: Okay, anything else from the, the floor? Any other questions? Thank you.
2: These national health IT projects, here it is.
1: I think the temptation it, with, with, with IT systems, and I, I suspect I'm not just talking about health service here or health care, is you, one, the larger one gets, the more benefits that you can see in, in terms of... Uh, you know, it's no use just having one branch of a bank having a wonderful IT system. It's got to be the whole national network and then the whole global network of banks. And the same sort of feeling happens in in, in, in healthcare. So the temptation is always to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But the difficulty is the complexity is very much greater. Uh, And you are absolutely right. The key stakeholders have not been involved um, from an early stage. And, And the key stakeholders, of course... Are the clinicians and not the managers, and, and and many of the IT systems have been designed for management purposes rather than for supporting clinicians.
0: Okay. Any last question before we move move on? Anybody else got a burning question? Okay. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
3: Keith.
4: Right, we're there, Sue.
0: Yeah. Very good. Thank you.
4: Right, well, uh, good afternoon. And let's see if there's anybody from Connecting for Health in the audience, actually, Alan. Uh, I do have, and I would admit, we have a a team from NHS London, actually, uh, that we've been working with here all week. Uh, And you can grill them about IT systems in London. Uh, and I also know—I kind of know quite a few people in the audience. Um, we've met in a number of different guises, so some of you have heard some of this before, but I think in different contexts. Uh, and what I mean by different contexts—I I work at the Business School, but as Sue said, um, I, I do do a lot of work nationally. But I'm also a local activist. I happen to live in Chipping Norton, which is about 20 miles north of here. I'm a patient. Uh, and uh, I've had quite a lot of doings with the Oxford health system. So there's different levels in this, and I think that's one of the things I want to reflect on as we talk about change. And um, I'm particularly interested in the large-scale problem and the complexity problem, so you're going to get some helicopter views in some of this. Uh, the, um, The obsession and the interest with change obviously happens at different levels. We've had a lot of talking here about what it's like on the ground, but... Uh, if you're dealing with the Department of Health or the, the NHS Management Board, or uh, I've dealt a lot with politicians as well, with, with government, uh, working in the 90s with the Shadow Cabinet, working with a lot of the ministers. And one of the problems you have when you deal with uh, a team that's going to run the country is that they, um, they kind of think they can do everything. This is um, an Oxford club, actually, in 1975, um, It's not the Bullenden Club, those of you that know the scene. It's actually got Tony Blair in. There he is, with his long hair. And um, one of the things we tend to think about is that there's a group of people, there's a sort of centre of things that apparently do change. And in a complex system world, that's going to be something I'm going to pick up on as a real problem and a real issue. And Sue has alluded to it already in the sense of getting any kind of complex change to happen from some kind of top or some kind of centre is almost a bad language. It almost doesn't work. And, of course, politicians, right, are in the middle of that issue. So my quick agenda uh, is going to be just a little bit about the context of where does change come from and then about how do we think about different types of change and then about implications for what I would call the systems leaders in a complex system. And um, where does change come from, I think, starts with an issue that if we're dealing with a complex system, and this is, uh, I've had a lot of of, of doings with public services in general, six million people working in the public sector, thousands and thousands of organizations of which health, social care is one part, This is a massive complex system, and apparently if you're in number 10, you think you can change it. Apparently if you're in some position, you think you can have an influence. So my salutary experience here was in 2000 working in the cabinet office where the request was to say, what can we do about leadership in the public sector? With an underlying rhetoric that says, why don't we hire 250 terrific leaders from the private sector? Because they're good, aren't they? and get them to run the place, change it, turn it around, do something. This is, this is a complex system. It doesn't work. But that's one set of actors in the process. I'd like to turn it upside down and say, well, but hang on a moment, do we really understand where change comes from? So outside health, an example I use quite a lot. Rebecca Hoskin. Anybody knows Rebecca? Um, probably don't. She was a, a BBC film camera crew person. And um, she lives on a farm down in Devon. And in um, 2006, she was making a film in Hawaii of problems of pollution. Anybody had seen those pictures in the Pacific of all that rubbish, plastic actually floating about? And she found all these whales, seals, chicks, turtles dead... And she actually broke down in tears and said, this is ridiculous. And she went back to her town at home in Modbury, in Devon. And she found some allies. She showed them the film. And in a month had persuaded 43 shops to replace their plastic bags. After six months, half a million had been avoided. The town and the ban became permanent. Thousands of people wrote to her. This is a blog starting, right? And said, how do you do it? How did it happen? What did you do? 80 towns in the UK by the end of 2007 were planning full bans. 33 London boroughs said they would pass a law to ban it. Gordon Brown got hold of it. End of 2007 said, this is a good idea. Calls a meeting of the supermarket heads and says, why don't we all do this? See what's happening? This is coming up. Now, kind of what happens next?
5: Interesting.
4: Interesting. We hit the clutch. We hit the kind of problems of complexity. But things happen. And there's probably a bunch of other Rebeccas out there doing something else. And, of course, Rebecca didn't stop there. She's back on the beach, now picking up bottles, not the bags. Okay? So watch this space next. Now, I use that example because, you know, complex systems. Where does the change come from? But then how does it actually then get built on? And what's the role of the different players in this? What's the role for Gordon Brown in this? He didn't start this. But is there some kind of role about a complex system set of actors that we need to think about in this process? Now, if I then jump anecdotally to health, and and I mention about local activism. I I live in Chipping Norton. uh, And one of the things, I I do the local newspapers, anybody that knows this. And one of the things that I did back in the early 2000s is help the town with a kind of bottom-up appraisal. We're on the north of Oxfordshire. It's a, it's a kind of Tory blue area, but there's, it's the only one left with a labour councillor, actually, and it's got some little areas of working deprivation. And our community hospital was threatened, old Victorian hospital. Our care home was threatened. The GP surgeries were worrying about what to do next, and all the central initiatives were focused on, well, maybe we should retrench. That's what happens with small market towns. And an unholy alliance of people got together, including the PCT, the county council, social care, GPs, a bunch of local activists, district councillors, and we kind of got in a room with the right kind of people and said, what are we going to do about it? And logically, there's some things you can do. And actually what's happened is we've come up with a... and this is back in 2002-03, a kind of interesting scheme which mixes private, public sector, charity, combinations, joint efforts... Um, Anybody that goes to Chipping Norton, this is now nearly finished. It's nearly built five years later. Lots of barriers, lots of issues. Uh, And, of course, a lot of different unholy alliances. Our MP is David Cameron. Uh, There he is holding our Christmas edition of the Chipping Norton News. And David, of course, is just an MP. And he's part of the unholy alliance. Uh, Interference, connection that starts happening with this process So again, where does change come from? How does it then get brought up? What obstacles does it hit? Is is there as an interesting issue? Now, if I jump right up to the Department of Health, and I started working with David Nicholson at the DH uh, when Patricia Hewitt was suffering financial problems. Uh, Everybody remembers some of the kind of slight chaos with the NHS reforms back in 2006, And a question of, well, what is the coherent approach to change that we need to think about for the next stage? Uh, And, of course, that's something about what happens next. And one of the things I've done, I've done this with a number of people you do, is to say, well, how do we do change then from the center? And I divide the room into two halves. And the left-hand side of the room, kind of there, I give them one problem. And that problem is going to be bird flu. And I did this in 2006, and it's interesting that both of these issues have kind of moved on in the three years. And the challenge I gave the left-hand side of the room, so here's in the room, Liam Donaldson, the the CMO, the Director Generals, the Heads of the Health Service, and I say, the problem you've got is that bird flu has hit. Not swine flu, bird flu. It's now real. We've been planning for it, and you've got to immunize the country in three months. I took the risk of saying that. I'm not quite sure that was even a real uh, thing to do. And and Liam told me afterwards, it's actually four months, but three months. How would you do it? And you immediately go into a change process that that people can line up. You know, we've we've got the swine flu, Zari and Dalton, who's uh, who's been organizing a lot of that. You go into a routine of saying somebody's in charge, there's a command and control, there's a line structure, we know what to do, we've been planning it, everybody has to be engaged... You can't do it without collaboration, but it's basically a system which lines up against making that happen. It's a directive system in the process. If I give you a different problem, so the other half of the room deals with obesity, and I say, can you solve the problem of obesity? And the problem is one that's more than a directive challenge. It's actually about society, behavior, many, many different people involved, many, many solutions, uh, long-term, and every single government department and agency is probably involved in this deal. So what do you do? How do you do it? What's the change process for dealing with a problem like that, when, in fact, we don't even really know the nature of the solution? Now, you can tell me probably, well, there are some solutions. I can do surgery. I can do health education. I can do food labeling. I can do eco-towns. I can build a whole new town around actually getting healthy. But how does it all work? How does it actually get uh, moved along in this process? And you find that the way you engage in change in that is very different from the first. And, and it becomes a challenge with the complex This is the foresight's chart that tries to explain obesity, If anybody's familiar with this, you've got things like individual psychology, physical environment, individual physical activity, physiology, food consumption, food production, social psychology, lots of connections. What are you going to do with that, right? Are you going to sort of set up some kind of implementation process for dealing with all the connections? Or is it about challenging a system where you can really get innovation and ideas to start accelerating largely around some social behaviours and some assumptions and a lot of different innovations, interventions from different pieces of the system, the medics, the schools, the food industry, the sports people, the gyms, Jamie Oliver, I could name thousands. And you have an unholy alliance of leadership in that process, which means then, in this kind of change, what is the role for leadership? Because my left-hand side says, I need leadership that knows what the answer is. It knows how to direct. It knows how to tell people the solution. Whereas on the right-hand side, the leaders don't know the answer. They need to convene. They need to set the purpose. They need to open the agenda up, and they need to encourage the innovation and the movement to happen. That's a very different vehicle. Very tough for people to know how to do that. And that's what Heifetz calls adaptive leadership Uh, on the left hand side it's technical technical because the experts know the answer now the notion of where we are in the health system is that there's there's problems on both sides there's innovations and change on both sides but some of the challenges we're facing on the right hand side are now major and on the agenda how do we switch from care to prevention how do you reinvent a pathway and get things out of acute to primary to home? How do you actually collaborate and get very different things to happen in an environment where money is ridiculous? That's an adaptive challenge. You know, If you actually ask a chief executive how are they going to do it, they'll try and tell you but I don't think they know. It's about how you actually engage the system on that challenging process and, and make that work. Now, what that tells me is if you look at the whole system in the NHS and say, well, What kinds of problems are technical? What kinds of problems are adaptive? And uh, for my team in NHS London, I actually pinched this from our workforce transformation uh, discussion. If you look at all the initiatives in a region to change things, they can map onto a chart. And and I'm not going to go through the whole lot. On the left-hand side, you start feeling about change initiatives that are quite directive. You kind of know how to implement them. Some of them are on the ground and local, some of them across a region, some of them across a system. Mechanical levers that you can pull, perhaps, in this process. But on the right-hand side, there's a bunch of stuff, and I include polyclinics in that right-hand side. Kind of, I sort of know what a polyclinic it is, but if I try and actually really make it work in lots of different places, it sometimes doesn't work in some, it works in others, it doesn't connect up. The context, I know Andrew's going to talk about this, will be very specific. So how do I lead the right-hand side of work when I don't know exactly how to do it? How do I actually stimulate the system? How do I connect the dots? How does diffusion happen across that right-hand side system? A major issue. Which brings me, therefore, to my last thought on kind of where we are on the journey of the health system. What is the implication of this for different kinds of leadership and, indeed, where we go with the NHS next? Where do we go with the leadership model and even the political and policy model that we need to do next? And I'm at the moment embroiled with post-election scenarios of what will happen if Andrew Lansley appears with a team in the middle of a train wreck of a money problem, right? What will happen? How will it play out and how will it work? And what happens on the ground when those issues are really hitting you in spades? And... And for me, that raises some interesting issues about, if I'm sitting with, with David Nicholson and the NHS Management Board, about how you actually act as a systems leader with a new political environment in that context. And uh, in very simple terms, in my last couple of slides, and, and it's quite interesting at the moment, that if you look at the kind of challenge in the health system, the, the quip agenda, uh, the money problems, the get-closer-to-home problems, that there is different ways in which people are assuming you can make that happen and, and David himself has got a funny language that he's using at the moment around with the SHA heads which is, uses the language is it L shaped or is it triangle and when you're going to have to remember that one to take away from here And what what he means by that is that if you look at how you really, perhaps in the old world, get things to happen in an NHS system, you kind of own it all and you tell them what to do and you try and manage it downwards with a direct, thick, black line. That's not what the hands-off state wants to do. It's not what the conservatives want to do. They want to use the L, the levers, the commissioning, the tariffs, the regulating, the market-making, now, right at the moment, we're using both. And it's very interesting if you look at the challenges in London or the Northwest or the Southeast. There's mixtures of these things going on. Uh, but if you look at a political environment, the ideology will use very different parts of the triangle. And where that goes next is going to be an interesting dichotomy. However, all this left-hand side is technical. The adaptive isn't there. If you want the adaptive change to work, you need the right-hand side. And the right-hand side is a very different role for the state and a very different role for leaders. It's about influence. It's about purpose. It's about outcomes. It's about catalytic change and challenge. And those red words down the right are very different from levers on the left. They're about deviance and innovation and social movements and Behavioural economics, that's, that's coming on the scene in a big faddish way, right? But it's always been there. But it's how do you get systems to move without direction? And, and the deployment of the right-hand side parts of these, where I would end up, is where we really need to think how different players in the game can have a role, both at national level and locally. Because this applies if you're running a hospital. It certainly applies if you're running a health system. So the answer... And the challenge is all of the above, which kind of ends with an issue of leadership: is that this is about ambidexterity. How do you deploy these and choose which ones are actually going to help you make change happen?
0: Okay, thank you very much. Okay, again, Keith, you've, you've given us a lot to debate and think about, which I'm sure we'll take up. We've got time for a couple of questions uh, on the presentation directly. Anybody have anything burning? One, one yeah. In,
2: uh, in the education, in the medical school or wherever, we don't seem to teach this uh, leadership, change, innovation. And so on. I just wondered, uh, shouldn't these These people have the culture already beforehand. And secondly, we are training people mainly to be acute medicine when 80% of the patients, at least in the UK, are chronic patients and growing worldwide. So we've got acute hospitals which need to be closed down more and build more chronic management. And chronic management can be like a diabetes nurse in the community is probably better than you going to the hospital. It's much more expert and knows how to treat it, whereas the doctor in the hospital is always treating acute patients and not really managing chronic. So the whole educational way we manage the people coming into the system is wrong, I think.
4: Well, actually, two, two comments and, and two specifics. First, all, on, on the first one, uh, I, I mean, and, and, and because Bam would have a comment in here as well, but, but I actually think there's actually quite a lot of strong recognition, recognition amongst the Royal Colleges and amongst uh, the, the training Uh, empires that that is a real issue and I think a lot of the medical uh, ground one training is now actually building in a lot of thinking about management and leadership not so that doctors necessarily can become managers but so that some of the thinking and the skills behind this is actually there and and I mean certainly uh, I've been doing a bit of work with the the National Leadership Council and Mark Goldman if anybody knows Mark is leading a a whole stream on clinical leadership development which starts absolutely kind of post-undergraduate level and, and it's not about developing kind of you know the top level leaders, uh, and I'm, I'm with you 100%. I think actually you find that there's a lot of momentum behind the Royal College's thinking and, and development of, of building in leadership skills, and certainly things like the BAM Foundation programmes, which are kind of the next level up yeah, for yeah. clinical leaders, are, I think are now very good. Um, Do you want no, to comment on that?
1: Can I just add, add, add something in that? I mean, BAM, one of the reasons that BAM exists is, is in order to be able to promote clinical leadership. Um, so, I, I think it does certainly have a view, but we have created, uh, more recently, an organization called Bambino, which is for the younger doctors to be involved very in nuts. it, and it is obvious, <laughs> rather obvious, I'm afraid, but, but, but it is actually a very thriving organization, we've got some very enthusiastic young people in that, and there is now um, actually another name which I've forgotten. Uh, which actually is for medical students who are involved, w- wanting to get involved in the clinical leadership agenda. And as far as the, um, you're absolutely right about the requirements to actually get people out of the acute phases, acute hospitals, into the more uh, community-based uh, chronic, I mean, that's exactly what uh, Lord Darcy had identified, and I think we would all support that. The difficulty is, is... is Is that additional to what we've got already, or is it a replacement? And the difficulty will be that it's got to be a replacement because there isn't any more money. And and that that is where the change becomes difficult.
4: I think it's a a classic... The point about shift, and actually a focus on the 80%, not the 20%, uh, an external observer would, would, would agree with you. I think there are an awful lot of mindsets in different parts of the stakeholder systems that still think that's not the case. Um, anecdotally, had anybody listened to the, the reform report that came out this morning on the Today program, uh, talking about, you know, the need to cut x0,000 hospital beds, same issue. And of course, the reaction of, of, uh, of the BMA, right, is that, you know, that's not a good idea because it's all about cost cutting. Now, Actually, on a good day, if you get the BMA aside, you know, that they, they'll realize that it's not that. And, in fact, the issue, of course, is how do you actually make that shift and get the right attention to, to, to end-to-end pathways in, with the right shift to primary without just making it cost-cutting in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's, that's, that's the issue that everybody would fear. But, no, I would agree with you 100%.
0: Okay, just before I ask Andrew to, to come up, I've got a question for you, Keith. And with, with the general election coming, um, how will systems leadership react, do you think? Can they be amb- ambidextrous in the way that you're describing and let loose change and get deviants involved uh, while still being accountable to the public? I mean, how do you...
4: Yeah. Uh, um. Sorry. I, fear, I, fear, <laughs> oh, I well, I did, we've been having this discussion this week, uh, I think, and with, with the team from NHS London. But the, um, uh, I, the, I fear politicians. That's an awful issue because uh, there is a massive amount of, of implicit, explicit, and unintentional, intentional interference mm. which, uh, which happens because of the accountability problem. And of course, the espoused. Um, rhetoric of, of most political parties is that we don't want to interfere. No. You know, we want hands-off. Um, and we would like the systems leaders and the managers and the leaders to actually get it right, and they, and they should do it. Um, and what you end up with, and this is your point about ambidexterity in a way, is that the people sandwiched in the middle are the managers and the leaders that have got to deal with both lots. Mm. And... Um, uh, I'd come back to the issue of capability and leadership and confidence to deal with that issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I was being a pessimist, I think there is going to be a train wreck, I keep using that term, in the next two years because I don't think the the assumptions about being able to deliver quality as well as productivity and cost mm-hmm. uh, are going to be held up. Um, on paper, you can do it, but I think to be able to deliver that with all the different levers, I think, is going to be tough. So we're going to end up with, I think, a a bit of a mess to manage, and the people in the middle are going to be the the poor old managers and leaders of the system. to have to have to cope with that. That's a very pessimistic view.
0: Andrew, cheer us up.
4: Good gracious. (laughs) What a a challenge. Let's get you uh, organised here, you?
6: Well, can I cheer everybody up? Uh, I've, got, I've got about 15 minutes. I must say the, uh, the three speakers have been chosen well. There, there are some complementarities uh, between what we're saying, but also some consistency. And beyond just saying it's all very complex, which is uh, not much help to anybody. But, uh, well, the, I, I, I've, I've been re- researching this area for about 30 or 40 years now, and I've got lots of evidence to back up what I'm going to say, but, of course, no time. So I'll say to you now... Uh, What I'm going to do is to offer uh, quickly some ideas, a point of view with those ideas, and some principles. Keep it high level. Uh, Those of you who want to find out where is the research which underpins what I'm saying, very happy to discuss that afterwards. No problem. So what's the uh, – where am I going? Well, putting change in its place, or innovation in its place, actually. Is probably a good place to start. I mean, everybody assumes, uh, people assume when I stand up and talk about change, I'm in favour of of change. Change is progress. Change is progressive. Because it isn't, you know. And we'll talk a little bit about that. We've had some indication of that already. So putting change in its place is is one thing we should talk about. And, uh, and of course, the other key thing about change innovation is that very often they're, they're just intermediate goods. I'm in the business of being a scholar. So people, people when they measure my performance, they, they look at how many publications i produced and in what kind of journals. But that's not good. I mean, that's just an intermediate step. What's the point in writing things if nobody ever reads them? You know? What matters is, is the final good, which is impact, not the intermediate step of publishing. It's the same with change. Change is, by and large, an intermediate step. Getting to the final outcome is, cru- is crucial. I think that's where Lord Darcy actually was getting us there, um, and I will come back to him in a moment. But so putting change in, in its place is, is a very crucial issue. Some questions. I thought it might ha- be help to, to explain where somebody like myself comes from who's researching this area to, to sort of see what sort of questions... Uh, am I interested in at the moment? As we all know, the questions are often a lot more interesting than the answers. But at least uh, I'll show you two or three questions, which at the moment I think are very interesting in this area, so you kind of locate us, uh, me, in that kind of way. And then finally, uh, to bounce on to some guiding principles, which about leading change, large-scale change, uh, where I'll deal with, try and deal with issues about the relationship between the centre and the periphery, whatever the centre is, uh, whatever the periphery is. Uh, and deal with some of the tensions uh, in those relationships but also some of the things we know uh, about uh, leading change. So that's where I'm going. Putting change in its place, well I think uh, as I've already hinted that uh, change can be seen as progress and progressive but we all know it can be harmful. Look at the number of innovations that have occurred in all walks of life actually which have produced havoc and damage. It can be transient. It's here, one minute, gone the next. Problems of sustainability, which we've already heard. And, of course, it can be beneficial, uh, but often just beneficial for those who are the initiators. The recipients may be less beneficial. So uh, it's got many faces. It's often episodic, seen as another project, rather than some long-term sustainable journey. And, of course, it can appear to be initiativitis. And uh, unfocused meddling, churning, not changing. And uh, I've been working, in, I don't just work in the NHS, I work in the private sector a lot uh, as well. And uh, the, one of the clearest things one can see about the last 25 years, the 30 years of the NHS is churning, just churning. Where's it going, you know? What's being delivered by all these changes? And the churning, one crucial thing we haven't heard yet so far, it, it, the churning with the very deeply negative consequences uh, is the question about the tenure of chief executives uh, in office. We all know that uh, senior clinicians tend to be around for a long time. Uh, chief executives, the average tenure in office of a chief executive in the National Health Service at the moment is somewhere between two and two and a half years. Actually, in the top 350 Private sector companies uh, in this country is about four years and a little bit longer, but by no means long enough. Most people who have got senior jobs and whatever system we've got, they've got to change agenda and problems about dealing with performers, which are long-term issues. Forget it. Uh, Giving people uh, two years in post or two and a half years, it's just a nonsense. I I used to work very closely with uh, John Harvey Jones, with many of you here when he was the chairman of ICI. And when he was offered the job of chairman chief executive, uh, after the previous uh, four or five people had only had three years in post, he said, "I don't want it." The change agenda I can see in front of me, and at least I need at least seven years in post to have any chance of having any kind of impact. And of course, uh, they wouldn't give him uh, seven years; he had to compromise with five. I said to him, "John, what's the what's the problem with the chief executive who's in post uh, for three years?" He said, "Well, year one." you go up a learning curve, because uh, one thing, watching somebody else do it, another thing, doing it yourself. One year one you go up, then you realise that for you, after a year, my goodness, I'm halfway through, I better do something. So year, year two you pull a lever, you do something, because we've all got to be noticed when we're in these positions. And then year, year three, what happens in year three is you, you lay the minefield for your successor. You know? so and the next one comes in, there's another uh, explosion. So the net effect of that, of course, is inertia the net effect of that degree of churning is actually inertia. So churning is a, a serious malpractice here, and uh, something which... I mean, I've, I've tried to tease a number of chief executives in the NHS about so this. They, they regularly say or well, imply that uh, the problem in the NHS is that uh, what they used to be called health authorities now trust. These are sovereign states they've all got their own GFA and they won't won't be any sort of central meddling to orchestrate people's careers. So not only are people churning too much in senior management positions, but of course, and they're not around long enough to have any impact, but it just becomes progressively uh, more difficult to deliver. I've mentioned the point about this. It's um, very often change is an intermediate good. Uh, But what we're really looking for is um, Uh, some final good, some socially and economically important outcome. And, uh, of course, the thing that Darzai was most interested in uh, was in the improvement in the patient experience and the improvement of patient outcomes. When I spoke to him, I said, in fact, thank God, somebody's finally got to the the final outcome, you know, after all these years of churning and messing about with the organization and the systems and uh, bits and pieces. But, of course, one can see that uh, his... The prospects there may be endangered by what we are just about to hear. See, as Keith was suggesting, that uh, it's going to be quite difficult to deal with the duality or triality of uh, quality, productivity uh, and, uh, uh, and and efficiency. And in the next year, most uh, chief executives are going to have to live with those dualities or trialities. They're going to have to balance one, and, but not at the expense of the other. So that's going to be quite tough as we go into the uh, the, the, the next era. In terms of uh, questions, I mean, these are the ones that uh, uh, interest me, just to give you an example of the sort of things that people in this sort of field at the moment are interested in. What's the relationship between leadership change and performance improvement in this hospital or community? As, as I say again, that, you know, anybody, anybody, any, anybody can deliver change. The question is, can you deliver change which raises in performance uh, improvement. That, that's the issue. So it's the relationship between leadership, uh, change and performance, which is the jugular question, if you might say. I think wh- one of the particular things about the NHS, which is not particular, is this question about pace of change. Uh, I've worked very a lot at ICI and BP and Shell and all sorts of large private sector organisations. and One sees all the time, wherever something appears at the top, which is supposed to be overwhelming and has to affect everybody, you always get a differential pace. It gets picked up faster in some localities than others and has a bigger impact faster. If it's going to have a positive impact in some, loca- some localities and others, exactly the same thing uh, happens in the NHS. Unsurprisingly, there are many NHSs. So the question about receptivity for change and why is it, you get this differential pace, differ, differential impact. It's something that's been studied, but I think we need to know a lot more. Of course, everybody's coming out a period of uh, targets and terror. Uh, everybody's interested uh, in, uh, uh, in, in failure or relative failure. And, of course, one ought to be interested there also in the processes of recovery and renewal. In fact, we've just finished the last big project I did with a PhD student. Uh, I think it's a very important piece of work on... What are the capabilities that are needed uh, uh, to recover and renew uh, acute hospitals which are, are, um, are failing? So these are some important questions. Uh, what about some guiding principles? Well, I, I'm going to put forward a theory in a moment. Let me give you some advanced warning of the theory or the elements of a theory. If you're interested in the relationship between leadership, change and performance, uh, one uh, critical thing to do, of course, is to have a, a theory which would posit that kind of relationship uh, in theoretical terms. The the one theory which has emerged, in fact emerged from some industrial economists uh, from Stanford University, Milgram and Roberts, when they first brought it out, it was called the new economics of complementarities, but it's essentially a theory about change uh, and leadership, and what they posit uh, is the notion that uh, uh, if you want to make changes and increase the probability of driving up performance... Then you have to make changes in mutually reinforcing sets, hence the term complementarity. It's essentially a theory about making sets of innovations, but not any old set, sets of mutually reinforcing innovations which push the system forward in some sort of aggregative fashion. And this theory actually is based on um, supermodularity and lattice theory from mathematics, but they they conducted some empirical work around it, and other people have done so since. Uh, And it's a powerful way of thinking about many of the issues that we're we're addressing today. What are the implications of such a theory, Uh, of of some, some set of people thinking and acting upon a system holistically? You can see a quick and easy move. From that to the importance of strong, aware, and engaged central direction. On all these words are important: strong, aware, certainly engaged. And in this, there are some, you know, uh, crucial issues. And uh, some of them, again, a quite simple question: is the direction? What is the direction? And is it clear? Is there a directional story? And uh, you might think, well, I'm sure everybody has a directional story. Uh, but if it's amazing, actually, uh, people who start off on change initiatives who are actually not that clear about direction. They certainly don't have a consistent and comprehensive and coherent view of it. The, the consensus around the direction is not clear. And where, where, they, uh, you know, where they've got that, they, there's a failure to tell the directional story. And we all know that directional stories are actually crucial narratives. About When people are being told or being encouraged to go somewhere they haven't yet been, one has to legitimate that and and explain it. And here the directional story is crucial. We all know that the, the best directional stories connect up the past, the present, and the future. So that's pretty important. And of course we all know about the power and significance of communication. The duality of centralizing and decentralizing. There's been a lot of talk, you may have noticed recently, about empowerment in the NHS. Which is justified, given the history. But I think um, uh, this is a, this question about centralizing and decentralizing where the power lies, where the things are shaped, uh, and the balance of centralizing and decentralizing in most oppositions, usually there's a sort of ever-swinging pendulum. Every ten years the pendulum swings from centralizing to decentralizing and the the pendulum swings back again. One of the striking characteristics one sees about modern corporations in the private sector at the moment is the capacity to handle this duality of centralizing and decentralizing at the same time. It's another crucial duality. And empowerment? Only a fool empowers without holding the ring. You need both, surely. Not one at the expense of the other. So, the philosophy of higher tiers setting and holding the ring and marrying top down pressure with bottom up concerns is a crucial sort of marriage uh, in this process. Foundings well, we all know foundings are fateful in human conduct. First steps in a new relationship, first steps in dealing with a neighbor next door, first steps in a new job. We all know that foundings are fateful in human life. and They're certainly fateful uh, in transformational journeys. Where and when one starts, what one starts with, are uh, usually fateful to what follow. Uh, I've seen time and time again, those who are fastest out of the gate are often fastest into the trap and out of the game. Not thinking things too clearly at the front end, is, we all know, is... Uh, and of course, it it's a tends to lead to regression. Things going backwards... Faster, in fact, than uh, uh, you went forward. So you end up not at one or zero where you started, you end up at zero minus ten, with a lot of bad feeling around about ever attempting anything like that again. Uh, as Sue has really uh, suggested, I'm, I'm very much a contextualist. In spite of what I've been saying about the, the importance of uh, a powerful uh, and a highly engaged centre, the relationship with the periphery is crucial. And uh, this leads on to the key issue about another duality of standardizing and customizing. The dangers, of course, of central uh, influence uh, is the the danger of standardization. Everybody's going to get sheep dipped in the same way. Everybody's going to get the same dose. And we're all going to California, but everybody's going on the same route, etc., etc. The power here, the power here comes from... Balancing off standardization, which presumably is about direction, with uh, customizing the route and the pace to reflect the local context. So again, it's a message about holding the ring uh, and empowering, if you like, expressed in a slightly different way. The compl- I'll finish with one or two observations about uh, complementarities which is the, the original work was done by, uh, in the mid-1990s by unlike, an unlikely pair of industrial economists who are not usually interested in the kind of issues that we're talking about. In fact, what they developed was a very powerful theory about, uh, uh, about the relationship between leadership and change. It's now been developed by a number of other people, including ourselves, and a much stronger result, uh, evidence base. But what, what, are the, what are the core precepts? Well, um, they are these. It's seeing performance and change, again, as a holistic system whose integrated nature and mutual reinforcement are antithetical to piecemeal change. One of the famous phrases of Milgram and Thomas: doing more of one thing increases the returns of doing more of another. And the, 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 the choice of the practices are the complements should not be thought of as discreetly but as belonging to a potentially integrated system of mutually reinforcing uh, uh, elements. These are some of the core precepts of of complementarity thinking which have now been tested out in a range of studies uh, from studies uh, looking at the uh, American steel mills and why, uh, why some American steel mills have been able to generate much higher levels of productivity than others. So the dependent variable there was a measure of productivity. Uh, to big studies in Japan and Europe and the United States on new forms of organizing and company performance, uh, uh, to the recent work we've just done on, uh, uh, on uh, turning around of hospital trusts, uh, where the evidence very substantially is confirmative of the two core propositions, the first one being about ensuring one looks at the system as a totality, decides on the core uh, complements and makes those in, those complementary innovations which are interdependent in a mutually reinforcing set. Where one does that, high probability of driving up performance, uh, the opposite proposition is nearly all, nearly all, substantiated as well, which is about the dangers of singular innovation. Where one in, in, innovates singularly, uh, you're more, you're not only will you not drive up performance, but you, there's plenty of evidence to show it actually drives down performance. So, as you can see, uh, I'll stop there uh, so we can move on, but the, the, these, are, these are some of the thoughts I would, uh, I would give at the moment to, uh, to, to take our discussion forward.
0: So, just as we've done before, there are a couple of questions specific to Andrew's presentation, and then I think we'll open it up for a, a general debate around the topic. Anybody got any specific questions? Perhaps I can ask you uh, one. I mean, what, what makes for a receptive context for change, then, and innovation?
6: Well, I think it's, uh, in some cases, it's, uh, it's to do with, of course, the, the availability of key leaders who are prepared to take responsibility, mm. uh, the emphasis being there on plural. I mean, there's been a, a long history, I think misplaced history, in the private sector of looking for individuals, of looking for transformational leaders expecting key figures like Harvey Jones and so on could do it, but the, all the evidence suggests it's the, it's, it's the ability of key leaders, sets of leaders who, as I emphasized earlier, are in place long enough uh, to, to deal with the, the agenda. So holding together to teams of people as leaders uh, in a sustainable way uh, to legitimate the change and to drive it forward. Secondly, of course, in the NHS, the, the, the significance of the quality of managerial clinical relationships which we all know is, is crucial. Uh, and here, we, we found, we, 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 part of the vocabulary in the study I'm thinking of, we, we were able to identify what we call strategic clinicians, as we call them, clinicians who were interested in, in the hospital or the health authority or the trust where it was, way beyond their own patch. Yeah. They were, they, you know, they, you know they, I mean, clinicians are, as we know, like, like professors, are the ultimate specialists, you know. Uh, and it's not a natural habit Uh, for clinicians to be interested in the the total system they're part of, but some people are. And and those people are actually critical uh, for the the, the managers to engage with, absolutely critical. And there's a mutuality uh, of of benefit that they can develop. So that would be a second one. Uh, A third thing is much to do with the the capacity to focus. I mean, uh, the... You know, the Richmond House phenomenon of, of exorcets and things being bombed thrown out of there every five minutes and disturbing the system, you know, is those people who, can, who recognize that many of the exocets that come out of Richmond House actually uh, don't have any warriors, you know, head, warheads in them. You know, they're, dum- they're dummies. You know? uh, so if you, if, you, if you can let the dummies fly over you uh, and, and concentrate on your own agenda and drive things through, uh, eye-focusing. Again, another key factor in 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 facilitating uh, receptive, and of course, uh, others are to do with uh, the the you know the uh, the culture of the system, the organisation, and uh, the the capacity to link together, you know, the the tie the legacy of every system that we know with the present and the future, exploiting the benefits of the culture Uh, and promoting a culture which, of course, is. Is, is, is more responsive, and that, that does require managerial action and clinical action. It's not something which naturally happens. So I, I could go on, but those are some those are some That's of the things helpful. that we found to be important.
3: Okay,
0: thank you very much. Okay, so there are no more specific questions for Andrew's presentation. What well, I sorry, there is yes. Thank you.
5: Health represents a very important public aspiration in some sense. And I certainly take your point that the Department of Health spends a lot of time sending circulars around that nobody really pays attention to when they realize it doesn't tie in with the operating framework or anything. But a lot of this is then tied into what politicians are saying to the public about what they're trying to do. So how do you kind of balance that circle of sort of You know, the legitimate expectations of the public voting in governments that they will, in a sense, supervise and encourage change, with then the kind of very long-term time horizons you're talking about that are required to, to actually deliver improved outcomes. I mean, is it possible in any way to accommodate those two things? Are they just naturally and always going to be just competing impulses?
6: Well, Keith's got much more experience of this question than I am. So could I... I'm not trying to pass a hot... hot Are you throwing the rugby ball? <laughs> no, but I'm happy to respond, but I just know that Keith is much closer to this than I am. But I, I will respond.
0: OK, so perhaps I'm invite Keith first. Well, so then, I, well I, just a half-answer.
4: Exactly. I, I was just thinking about... I spent a lot of time the year before last chairing a lot of the groups on the NHS constitution. And uh, any, you know, any of you involved in that? And, of course, that's partly a political vehicle, uh, which the Labour government, in spite of the fact the Conservatives said they should be one as well, uh, the Labour government decided to do it partly as a sort of lock-in to the notion that the NHS, as a, as a, as a free at the point of delivery long-term uh, service, could be locked in with law. Um, and, uh, and, of course, anybody that's, that's, that's involved with the Constitution stuff, you know, gets tied up in knots with the notion of rights of the public and rights of patients and the long-term security of a democratically accountable NHS. Um, what, what I found quite interesting in being involved in that is, is that the it, – it is a peculiar – the NHS is a peculiar thing in that sense because the, the relationship with the public – has a whole series of dynamics that have gone on for many years. And you can be a member of the public in that conversation, but your role on a Tuesday compared with a Monday as a patient actually changes. And you get very different perceptions between individuals as members of public versus patient. And um, politicians get tied up in knots with that, because they don't know which one to deal with. I, I, I think the, the quick answer I would say is that um, there is, a, uh, uh, with something like the NHS, there is a real long-term democratic issue which everybody, I think, is very aware of, even the politicians that <coughs> come and go and the chief executives that come and go, and there's a peculiarity about this kind of system. Um, and I don't think that's going to go away. I think that issue of accountability... Democratic accountability and debates about democratic deficits that appear from time to time are going to continue to be a major issue in what happens next in the system. Um, The only other quick thing I would say is quite interesting when we talk about change or not change or whatever and you look at and you step back and say 60 years is quite an interesting period where stuff has happened and the retaining of accountability and democracy in that system, with its warts and all and its problems, is still there. Now, will that actually potentially change? Maybe. And I, and I, um, because there, there, is, there is one set of views that says, if the NHS goes bust, we will eventually break out of that whole democratic thinking, and it will just open itself up as a regular industry uh, without that real connection with public. But I think we're a long way off doing that. I'm not answering your question precisely, but I think there's an interesting set of issues. That yeah. that are in there. Right.
6: The one response I'd make, i be giving a moment to further to reflect on it, is the question about the relationship between democratic accountability and scale. Clearly, uh, these issues are, are more manageable at, at a local level than they are at the national level, which uh, some of them might seem absolutely impossible. Uh, when I was referring to the... the, the the progress made by focusing at a local level in response to sue 's question behind that, of course, that focusing is the, is the capacity to consult and engage lo- locally with people so that, that the, the focusing the area of focusing is is commensurate with and shaped by local needs and wants, so you can see that, that gives the whoever 's managing the local system of course enormous uh, greater credibility. Mm-hmm. And power and of course ability to hold off Richmond House. (laughs) If if you've consulted your local patch and and including the local MP presumably, uh, he or she's involved in that process, not only is is the the content area of the focusing likely to be clearer and sharper and more sustainable but of course it will also be politically uh, much more acceptable. And if it's politically much more acceptable, again more likely to be sustainable. So I can see that those are the issues you're getting out, playing out much more powerfully at a local level
5: than, of course, at the national level. The only thing I would just say in response to that, perhaps, is, I mean, I... I should say, I'm a public affairs officer for the Royal College of Physicians, and one of the things we've been doing is observing um, reconfiguration within London as well, North London. And, I mean, we don't take a formal view on it one way or the other, but it's certainly very clear that... um, for a lot of local politicians... I don't think this is specific to London either. This is true of anywhere, you know. Where an A&E is threatened, you just get the local MPs sort of running down there to sort of get their pictures taken. And it's sort of... Um, I agree that, you know, consultation and, and local consultation and, and democratic engagement, that way is one way to get around it. But that doesn't necessarily free local management to then drive through change that's necessary because it is, you know... Because of the emotive nature of some of these issues it is hostage then to local politics as well. And so, I mean, I hope I'm not sounding very negative, but I, I, I'm just keen to like, you know, pull this apart a little bit.
6: Well, I'll just respond by saying, surely one of the uh, things one, we, we talked earlier about what are effective leaders like. If you saw, if you saw one walking down the street, what would he or she looked like, like what, what would you expect of them? One, of the, one, of the things, one thing you would expect of them is the capacity to manage across boundaries. Uh, you know, and that's a highly political process of course which requires a, a great deal of skill. I think also skills of impression management which are equally important I think uh, in that process. So I think these are standard skills that one would expect uh, uh, of, uh, of anybody in an, an authority position whether they're clinicians or managers who are trying to do something that they think is significant in their, in their locality.
0: Okay, so opening up the questions
1: to the floor. Yes, at the back there, please. I guess, I guess this is a question for Dr. Cole because I thought he described beautifully the current situation based on his years of experience as a medical director where hospital consultants are often very influential, but mainly as a barrier to change. Um, it's always struck me as a hospital consultant (laughs) that uh, I don't see why we aren't much more directly responsible and accountable for the services that we manage and whose change we resist so effectively when we choose to do so. So it's not a rhetorical question, but I'd just like to hear the panel's views on what would be the downsides of much more direct involvement.
0: Thank you. Shall I start off? Yes, I think that would be
1: um, I, I, I hope I didn't put it across that consultants in the acute, hosp- in the acute sector are always the barriers and obstacles to change because I, I, I don't think they are. They can also be uh, the carriers of change, and um, etc. But I, I do take your point uh, that that there is this um, f- problem about medical staff are often perceived as being the people who find the objections. And I think that's the key to my part of the answer is that often um, some times I find that, that, that a senior member of the medical staff gets a brilliant idea about a solution to a problem, innovative solution to a problem, which suits them right down to the, t- to, to the ground. But unfortunately, there are losers. And there are real problems for other people. And there are few medical staff, and that's what Andrew was actually saying earlier on. There are few medical staff who've been able to make that transition to be able to look very much more strategically at, at, at getting the win-win situations for everyone and being able to compromise their own perfect solution. And I think that that is about leadership development. Uh, and I think that is up to us to, as, as medical staff to actually consider um, how we should take that on in, in, in leadership development. And and again, of course, that's one of the things that BAM is about. It's a fairly unique organisation because there aren't really any other organisations in the medical profession that um, have that as as their main aim. Um, I I think I'll I'll probably leave it there for the time being, but, but do I think that in the future, medical staff should be taking much more responsibility for the organisational management and the, the development of strategy and the development thing. the answer is yes, of course. I wouldn't have been 17 years as a medical director if I didn't feel that passionately and strongly. But I think it, uh, there is a lot of development within the medical profession to go in order to be able to get uh, it in a robust form so that people actually are behaving mutually rather than through self-interest. Thank you.
4: No, I, I don't have, a, a, it's not really my well, yeah, I, mean, I I think I'm just, as, a, as an amateur, agreeing. Mm-hmm. I don't see why it doesn't happen, why it shouldn't happen more. One of the things I, I've always been slightly perplexed by is when you look at other industries that have professional experts, uh, you get a very different model where they actually do take on responsibility and leadership. So if you take schools and universities, uh, or you take R&D and research and development in pharmaceutical companies... Uh, and, there's, and nobody even questions it. You know, that it's, it's, in fact, it's almost that if you didn't do that, it would be, it would be strange. And, and I've, I've never really quite got to the yeah, bottom of right, why so. yeah. you know, we, we've got an opposite yeah, set of, of ethos and mores in, 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 a, in a health system. Maybe you can...
1: Well, well of course, you only have to go over the pond uh, to America, and you'll find managed care organisations that wouldn't think, for a second, that, that they shouldn't be led by uh, someone with a clinical background. And I think like things like Kaiser Permanente, um, etc. So it's not a million miles away um, as a as a possibility. I I think it actually the reason why doctors have got themselves cast, or many doctors have got themselves cast as obstacles and obstructors, partly harks back in my mind to the previous rather good question about how it actually all works with democratic principle. Um, Because actually, there is a real problem in the NHS that the um, political aspects of the democratic principle are in a wrong time phase for healthcare, in my opinion, that they're they're all wrong. And there there are some really hard, wicked problems, dichotomies that are going on, whereby there is huge advantage for politicians to up expectations alongside the media um, and those expectations are often way outside with anything which is realistic uh, and then at the same time they have responsibility for keeping a cap on funding which actually puts everyone into a very seriously difficult place and the doctors are frequently caught in the middle and are trying, are trying quite frankly to actually be the voice of wisdom but actually get cast in the, in the role of, of, of of an obstructor. I'm, I'm
6: biased.
0: Mm-hmm. Andrew do you want to take another question? Yeah? Yeah. I take another question. Okay, okay. okay. Can I have another question Uh
4: please my name. Thank you. You've had <laughs> um, thank you. Can I ask um, the, the, the first speaker about morale? Um, in your experience in the last five, ten years, um, is morale falling? Is it rising? Is it, what, what is the uh, morale in, in the NHS? And as a follow-up to, to the second and third speakers, wh- what is the evidence which leads to sort of falling morale in large organizations?
1: I, I'm going to defer to others around the more academic aspects of how one measures morale because uh, I think that's a scholarly activity which I'm probably not very well placed to answer. But I will just say, I mean, there is this, this perception that if you go and ask... Um, many members of the NHS, what's morale like, and so it's, it's never been worse. I've referred to that in my talk. I, in my view, the NHS is full of extremely well-motivated, extremely bright people who, perfor- by and large, perform very well. I don't think that's the nature of a l- very low morale organisation. I think there are real tensions, but I don't personally think the NHS is a low morale organisation. But... As far as the measurement of morale, that's outside my sphere of, of, of knowledge. and It's more of an organisational science, I think.
4: I, I Sue it, it might be quite a good person to answer. I, I, the, only, the only bit I think I'd say on... on uh, and I, I don't have all the facts, but if you look at things that are measured on staff surveys over yeah. five, six, seven years... Mm-hmm. I actually don't think it's got a lot worse. No, I think it's fine. And the other bit that I would pick up, which is a bit related to what you said, is a lot of the work that was done, again, only because uh, it's the only bit I know, in in the uh, Constitution work uh, back in in two or three years ago of actually engaging with a very large number of staff on the issue of values and the issue of what matters. And I I would agree that what... You said, um, Alan, came out is that once you get involved in the engagement on what matters,
5: mm-hmm.
4: you, the negativity is about kind of them up there and management and interference. The positivity is about my job and the role very. and what's happening on the ground yes. with me and my and my colleagues. Now that that is a dichotomy, but I think that's the sort of thing that came up very strongly, of mm-hmm. the what matters stuff and the values work. Now, of course, what that then did, and this is an issue of leadership again, and the NHS Institute's been a kind of party to this as well, is that it raises the real value of leadership and their engagement with staff, not communication I'm talking about, but the engagement process uh, of engaging with staff on the agenda, the change, uh, values, what it matters, what means, and and, and all of that. And that, that has come out in spades, I think. And certainly, and this is where I it would be good. I don't have the research, but <laughs> it would be where evidence of good engagement with staff actually by leadership does actually produce better results. Would be quite an interesting uh, proposition. I, I don't
0: know the answer to that, but I'm sure you're right about it not being radically different uh, over time. Would you? Do you want to come back on any question? Is, is, that, is that right? If we move on, okay. Thank you. Sorry, colleague behind. Thank you. In terms
2: of governments and of leaders in health service, for example, there will be no emphasis on translational change because it takes. it will be whatever result will come long after they've left their post. So they're much more interested in acute solutions, quick problems, solve the problem. They can show they've done something, whereas a long-term problem for 20 years, no one will do because by the 20 years' time, someone else will be in that job. Uh, do you think that's going to affect how this is uh, I think well, as, as, uh, as I implied in my talk I think there is a relationship
6: between clarity of direction focusing and maintaining that direction and persistent effort to enable or implement there is a relationship between that and, and long term success <coughs> of any system so it's, it's quite clear that's the case. But, but you, he says the usual argument about politicians, of course, is that they're, they're only in, in office for four or five years. But in the last 20, 30 years, we've seen uh, political parties in, in, in power for a long periods of time, very long periods of time. Mrs. Thatcher era was the, the present uh, government. You, you,
2: they can't use that excuse. Yeah, they tend to make the major changes or promises just three months before the general election. <coughs> and then maybe 10 years beforehand, they haven't done anything. And suddenly, everybody wants to make changes. This is the issue, I think, in how we change that mentality to actually do continuous change.
0: Anybody want to respond to that question?
2: Well, I mean, I accept
1: the argument, and I've already stated that the the political cycle and democratic cycle doesn't fit very well with the national health service cycle. But I think it would be wrong to think that to get ourselves into a big dark hole to say that actually long-term change doesn't happen. In my experience: long-term change does happen. If you look back over five, ten, fifteen, twenty years, the changes have been quite dramatic and many of them very beneficial. It's moved on.
4: A couple of quick ones. I, I don't think the two are ir, ir, irreconcilable. Um, again, I'm always looking for other examples of how things work and don't work, but. And actually, anecdotally, there's people in the room that have a better view of me, but I think the the, the investment over a longish period in research, in R&D, in medical research by various governments, um, has actually been uh, something that has continued. Now, everybody's worried about the threats uh, to that in in the short term in budget cuts as well. But that's a... And it's not just in health service. I think the the investment in R&D and investment by a nation... uh, from public funding, there's some evidence that that that, that does happen and has been long-term. My anecdotal question, I was looking for other examples, is is pharmaceutical companies that get changes in chief executives and changes in management and shareholders who demand earnings per share every three months uh, somehow manage to achieve long-term investments um, because of the dynamic of of why that's important for their long-term sustainability. Now, of course, the interesting thing is that shareholders recognise that in 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 the way they think about it, so they don't mind uh, that investment. It's an assumption that that system would work, not quite the same system. But I, I don't think the two things are irreconcilable. Yeah. I, th- I think it's a question of looking at where are the tensions. Okay,
0: thank you. Any other questions yeah. about that? Yes, thank you. Uh, uh, change and and the concept of is change good or is change bad. And I just wonder what any of your thoughts are on the term change versus um, continuous improvement. And I I guess some subtleties but maybe not. Okay, change versus continuous improvement. Well,
6: the the philosophy uh, of of change i was trying to argue for was one of continuous improvement looking for deciding where uh, where the direction is and then sticking with it but in an adaptive sort of fashion not in a blinded sort of fashion Uh, that's that's where we've got results in both the private and public sectors that's what tends to deliver uh, positive outcomes so you know that's the philosophy uh, i've been recommending and certainly many people would uh, Many, many people would acknowledge. And that does require, of course, something we haven't talked about directly, um, a capacity inside an organization uh, for continuous improvement, which, again, is not just invented by somebody. It doesn't just happen overnight. It has to be worked at and built and constructed. And the the receptive context I was arguing for earlier are, are, are... Sometimes take a long while to build those kind of capabilities, but they're very easily lost by precipitous action or by the loss of key people or key people in a team. So these things are very hard to create, and, and uh, but they're very quickly lost. They're precarious, in other words.
4: Okay, I, I, I can't agree with Angie. I mean, that, that, uh, particularly on the issue of, of, of internal capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you... If, if, and we could have a little discussion about what sort of change, but if change is always something that's kind of externally driven or enabled, you know, you, you haven't got the sustainability in the system. Uh, if I step back and take a long-term view, and one, one of the interesting things for me is, is, is the notion of built-to-last systems. And... Uh, you know, Oxford University, 900 years, right? Um, does it change? It change changed good. And a lot of people attack the university saying, you know, it's always stuck in its old ways, it doesn't change. But that's clearly rubbish because otherwise, what's it doing for 900 years? Yeah. And, and within that, there is a capacity and capability of a very complicated system in the university, which has changed many times to sustain and change itself again. Um, it, it, it has external shocks. And the nature of change inside can sometimes be continuous or it can be sudden and can be occasionally revolutionary. You know, you can get... We've had revolutions in the university over 900 years. But what's interesting is, well, over, over that long period, are there some characteristics? And Andrew uh, highlighted this kind of notion of coherence and direction. You know, why are you here? That's not a bad place to start. But there's something that, 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 that takes that forward. Um, So, difficult question to be specific. Um.
6: Can I just just follow up on that? uh, The the notion about sustainability. I mean, in the private sector, most firms die. If you look at the the proportion of of the top 500 companies in the United Kingdom in 1900, that was still around in, in 2000, there were only 8% survived. Only 8%. That's indicative that actually there are problems of sustainability and adaptability. Uh, and it, in a sense, it's quite a shocking figure, you might argue. Mm. Only 8% survived that century. And, of course, Oxford <laughs> survived 800 years, you know, so I don't see it disappearing either. But uh, uh, it must have something to do with, obviously... A l- long-term adaptability, and of course position in the, in the system, uh, which kind of re- your success reinforces success. You know, uh, that's why elitist institutions survive, as well as the you know the, the particular things they give to society, which, as elite institutions, allows them more easily to survive than others. am oh, sorry, Hi, I
1: well, well, I, I wasn't going to add anything very useful, but except to say that. I think continuous improvement is um, the definition of change by an optimist, but but um, actually you've got to think of continuous improvement. uh, It's all part and parcel of the same thing. It needs the knowledge and science of of change, and it needs the novelty of innovation in order to be able to make continuous improvement work.
3: Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Mary Black, um, I live and work in Serbia, and what I sometimes observe when I come back to England, because it's almost foreign to me, is um, a lot of change that other people don't notice, because it's been happening continuously, so, you know, I come back and suddenly people are doing GP telephone consultations, and I thought, that's amazing, I've actually never seen that before, but what I do here um, is a continuous culture of complaint, so, people here are very willing to say what's wrong. And it's, it's refreshing, because I come from a country where nobody is willing to say anything except that they're right. Um, and it's, it's almost like the flip side of the best thing I've ever found in the NHS, which is uh, the culture of audit and of peer review, self-examination, and, and a quite balanced approach to being taking the personal out of it, looking across, seeing what's working, you know, talking about it, and, and it's, at its best side, it's um, it's audit and it's peer review and it's uh, it's a good process, and it's at its worst side, it can be a culture of almost continuous negativity. Um, so I had two comments. One was maybe what do you think of that, the the kind of the inward looking examination plus complaint side, and also the impact of lo- having outsiders come in and look over time and maybe seeing things you don't see thank you
1: hmm. Let's. Um, I think the business about coming in from outside I, I, I've spent a couple of periods in my time actually outside of clinical practice um, and e- even for a short few months and I absolutely support what you're saying is that actually you just don't realise how quickly things have changed uh, when you're outside even for a quite short period of time. So that just reinforces my strong belief in the first thing I said, the NHS is changing all the time and, and, and quite large changes. So I don't think it resists change as much as people perhaps um, make out. The business of um, I mean, yes I, I, I am, I, I think the NHS has done very well with the concept of audit and the concept of using evidence and I think NICE has been a, a success story um, which is being, being, people are attempting to replicate throughout the world now. So I, <coughs> yeah, I think, think that, that that is an excellent uh, side to uh, <coughs> the more thoughtful side of healthcare which, which I think is an important part of the NHS. But the business of, of complaints and, and I mean that's all, to me all about um, expectations. And, and, and we have upped expectations um, I'm not quite sure who's upped expectations whether it's the health <laughs> service's up upped it, the politicians or the media or a combination of all three uh, or just the public in general I, 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 I think one could debate that forever but the expectations have increased but, uh, and, and complaints increase with that um, it, it, it is interesting to me that um, you know living with a teenager which I do um, who, who is vociferous about complaints which when I was young one well, would never thought of complaining and, and there's something about the fact that uh, as you as an organisation develops as a culture and a society develops I suspect it's probably quite healthy um, to actually have that that ability to complain and I don't I can't remember who it was, the British Telecom saying that every complaint is a pearl. I don't go quite that far because they're a pain in the neck uh, when you're actually working with them as a medical director. But but at the end of the day, I think the culture of complaint is probably healthy in in, in the NHS.
4: Uh, Two two comments. One, One is, I'm not quite sure where you were coming from, but the notion of an outsider coming in to reflect... Things you don't see yourself, which was one of the points you made. Uh, and maybe uh, back to sort of sustainable organizations and systems somehow have a capability of doing that themselves. Uh, it's something to do with antennae, it's something to do with inquisitiveness, it's something to do with uh, co creation with their outside users and stakeholders. That, that the, you know, the good ones, I think, have that ability. You don't need an outsider to. And this isn't just reflecting on recognizing the change that's happening to you but recognizing that, that, that things can and should move on so this notion of antennae, I think is quite interesting now that, that does link I think a little bit which we haven't been talked about patients much actually today but the, the, the relationship we did talk about it in the context of the constitution public and patients the relationship with the people that are connecting with the health service I think is an incredibly important conversation which changes over time, and uh, I, I think there is the, this is directly on the issue of the complaint issue, that there's a whole story about public services shifting over many, many years with a different relationship between the public and the service. You know, it used to be almost, you know, I belonged to Queen Victoria. You know, I was, I was owned by the, the, the king and the queen. Then it moved after, when we introduced big services nationally to a kind of I-need-the-service dependency what we've moved on to a bit is the is the kind of consumer you know the i want with the assumption that a public service is like a consumer good there is a view that you know we move on to something else which is more of a kind of self-responsibility i can this is charlie Ledbetter stuff rather than i want and the complaint bit is in that world where you think you demand and expect a service in public services, I think that's a more complicated question. And in health, it's a more complicated question because the responsibility for health is not just about getting that service. Um, so I, th- I think it will be interesting to see where it goes next. Will it still be a kind of consumer thing with complaints? or will we move on past that into a different kind of agenda about the public and individuals being much more aware and responsible about their own health and actually influencing the service directly uh, in the way it actually delivers and works. Thank you. Andrew, anything else
6: I don't uh, have a lot to say about complaints. I'm not familiar with what's going on in the NHS and those are t- just impressions, but the, the, the bigger question you raise about the role of outside influences, you know, on organisational functioning and performance is well, well understood, I think, and well, well analysed. There there's a very clear relationship between permeability of boundary you know, how open the boundary is and, and the capacity of systems to learn and keep learning there's plenty of evidence even the current work we're doing on, on the turnaround of, uh, of failing trust you can see how crucial that is but another crucial issue one needs alongside it is the, how action oriented is the, is the culture a lot of people get lots of information and they just sit on it uh, there's no capacity for action or a very low capacity for action. Uh, And this is often then highly counterproductive. Lots of new ideas coming in, no capacity uh, to act upon those ideas. And uh, so clearly one needs both, and one can't necessarily assume both will be there. Again, two big organizational capabilities that need to be constructed.
0: Okay, well, we've got to, uh, to 3 o'clock, so I'd, I'd like to uh, close by saying thank you very much to our panelists and to you, the audience, for asking uh, the questions that you did. We've, we've touched on many obstacles and uh, I think explored some interesting avenues for change, so I'm encouraging you all to go to be deviants and do things in your organizations to change things. So thank you very much. Thank you. Very good.